Director Sam Irvin has had one amazing career. He was Brian De Palma's assistant. He directed films for Full Moon in their prime. And most importantly for this podcast, he has directed a boatload of Christmas TV movies. Sam was nice enough to take time out of his day to answer a bunch of questions that I had about what it was like making all of these holiday themed films. Do you remember how you got to that first job directing a Christmas movie? It was around 2005, I guess. It was a film called Too Cool for Christmas, also known as A Very Cool Christmas. And I was working for Here TV, which was a gay premium network. And I was directing their series, Dante's Cove, which was a very sexy, gay, supernatural series. And they also had a production company called Region Entertainment that made mainstream, made for TV films for clients like uh, Lifetime and Hallmark and that sort of thing. And they decided that we want to have a Christmas film that can appeal directly to our gay viewers on here TV, but we don't have enough money to really fund a gay Christmas film just for our network. We need to make it commercial so that it could be bought by one of the mainstream networks. And so in basically the story is about a teenage girl who befriends the mall Santa and she decides that he's too fat and too old fashioned and needs a huge makeover. And so she puts him on an exercise regimen, a diet, gives him a tan and a tanning booth. And he comes out looking like George Hamilton. Hamilton in a business suit because he's played by George Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. In one version, her parents are a mom and a dad. In the one for the gay network, she has two dads. And so whenever we did, we were shooting any of the domestic scenes at home with the parents, we would, we had one actor who was constant in both as one of the, as the dad. And then we would switch out the mom and the and dad number two. So in other words, you know, we do a take with mom and dad and then we yank out the lady and bring in the other guy and and do another take. I'm openly gay. And they said, you know, if you want to change up the dialogue for the gay dads to make it more what a gay audience would like, you know, feel free to change up the dialogue. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The, The whole point of this would be that it's matter of fact that, you know, parents are all alike. They've got to deal with the same problems that they have with their kids. And I think it'll be fabulous to just have the dialogue exactly the same. And so that's what we did. There was one tiny exception. That was that at one scene, the head of mall security comes over to give a lecture to the parents that their daughter is spending way too much time at the mall. Uh, he comes over and we shoot, we shoot this first take with the mom and the dad. And so he says, now, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, your daughter is spending too much time at the mall. Okay, good. Cut. Bring in the other dad. Okay, and action. Mr. and M- M- Mr. Smith, your daughter is spending too much time at the mall. It was the only thing I didn't think of was how he would address the dad. <laughs> and, and it was such a natural way to do it that we kept it in. And it was really funny. And, I mean, the crew. luckily the crew waited to bust out laughing after I said cut 
and it was usable, and it's just a really natural moment in the gay version of the film that I'm very proud of. That's how I got started. And so Lifetime did buy this, the so-called quote-unquote straight version, and then Here TV played the, the gay version. And they're both available on DVD. The gay one is called Too Cool for Christmas, and the one that aired on Lifetime was A Very Cool Christmas. I might have it reversed, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's correct. But you can tell on the cover, though, you'll see a mom and a dad on one cover and two dads on the other cover. So that was a really unique situation. That was pretty cool way to, to get my feet wet making Christmas movies. And then a um, few years went by, but then I did a Christmas film called My Santa with... Um, Matthew Lawrence, Julie Brown, Samir Armstrong, and we also had Jim O'Hare, who was Jerry on Parks and Recreation. It's a really cute film, and that one I did for a production company. Aside from the first one, all the others that I've done have been for production companies who make films to sell to the networks, either Hallmark or Lifetime or several of the others that do Christmas, that, that air Christmas movies every year. So I'm, I rarely deal directly with the networks themselves. I'm dealing with these production companies. So this particular production company, um, that one was for Mar Vista, and they sold it to the Ion Network. But since then, um, they, the Ion Network only had the rights for a couple of years, and then it has since sold um, and is aired on Lifetime, and you know you can get it on streaming services and whatnot. I'm curious to know that, like in 2004, when you were making your first Christmas movie, was there like parameters that they wanted you to hit as far as its construction went? Because I don't. Think I think that early on it was such a widespread phenomenon as far as, as like production companies making them. It was definitely a little more open. I didn't feel the the restraint and it didn't follow most of the formulas that are in existence now. It's usually a romance. And the one that I did originally was not a romance. It was just a teenage girl putting Santa through a makeover. And so it really was outside the, the main formula of the ones that you see now. The ones you see now, it's usually a big city girl who's uh, got a big career going and she's kind of scared of Christmas and she goes, home to small town to visit her family for the holidays and get the Christmas spirit and lands a new boyfriend who is a little more um, less city-fied and and more tuned to, you know, earthy, a little more earthy, and they live happily ever after. <laughs> and that's usually, that covers almost all the ones that I've done since then. <laughs> and as a director, when you get these projects or you're hired for them, how do you find a way to stay interested in them when you approach just like the work? I love the challenge of, you know, it is definitely a formula. Nobody's, you know, trying to hide that. I mean, they, these are comforts movies you know you you know just like your family recipes for thanksgiving you know you don't want to deviate you wait for that taste all year and you want to taste that and so that's what these are and so it's just about you know i try to make the performances as believable and as emotional as possible so that they're really engaging i try to make them look incredible my feeling is if somebody's flipping around the TV and they land on a random shot of any of my Christmas movies, I want it to scream 
Christmas, just all kinds of, you know, Christmas decor. And I think I hold the record I, in one big, uh, in, in a house that we had, you know, where the, the living room and the dining room and the kitchen are all sort of one uh, big open space. I had 15 Christmas trees. <laughs> 15! <laughs> so there was no way you could, in whatever close-up angle, any angle you were at, you'd always have Christmas tree light in the soft focus in the background and you know starting a new one i tell my production designer i said look you know i hold the record i put 15 trees in one place so be ready you know you gotta have you better have 20 trees on that truck ready to go you know that's what i do just every set that we go to i just go i just stand there and i go okay tree 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 i just point around the room and so yeah i mean it's just trying to make it as christmasy and as beautiful as possible they always want snow in these films so and we used create well we always have to create fake snow because we're usually shooting them in the summer or early fall you know people say well why don't you just shoot it and wait and shoot it in january well because then the production companies have to spend the money in january and wait they don't get paid until it airs so they'd have to wait all those months and all that bank interest if they've taken out loans or anything else would pile up too much so so everybody waits to the last possible second to make the films, to actually shoot them and spend the money. So that's why, you know, they're, God, they're probably making, what, 75 to 100 new Christmas movies every year. And they're all being made <laughs> in the late summer and fall, mostly. Even if you did have real snow, it's hard to control. You know, one day you have feet of snow and, and, you know, a week later it's all melted and you have, you know, a half an inch or dusting or not or none, you know, you can't control mother nature. And once they start plowing it, that it all turns into black slush and you still are going to have to be creating snow for continuity or to cover up dirty snow, you know, and, and you, it's, it's so much more controllable to just go ahead and just create all of it. And I will say this, though, a lot of the substances we use, like in big, wide open lawns and big areas, we use a foam. You hook up a hose to this formula and it's all biodegradable and it doesn't hurt the grass or the trees or anything. But it's foamy and it evaporates in about 20 minutes in the sun. Oh, boy. <laughs> you're, constantly, you're constantly having to reapply it. Well, one year I did a film called Christmas Land. And that one was shot very late in the game. It was shot in November, and we finished shooting it just before Thanksgiving, and it premiered on December 10th. So it was, it was the shortest post-production of any of the ones I've done. It was an incredible rush. But the good thing, we shot this in Utah, and in November, they didn't have snow, but it was cold. It was freezing cold. And... The foam did not evaporate in that cold of weather. So once we put the foam down, we were good for that day. And that was incredible. But the really important thing, that side effect, was that you could see the actor's breath. And it suddenly, it just, everything really took on a much more authentic, cold, wintry feel that you don't get when you're shooting, you know, fake snow in, you know, 90 degree weather with people sweating in their, in their winter coats. <laughs> And, you know, pe people, when they're really, truly cold, 
the just the physicality of how people stand and how the extras are, you know, got their arms close to their body and crossing them across their chest. Everything just automatically looked wintry and and chilly, and it, it made a huge difference. It really did. That that one is one of my very favorite Christmas Land. Definitely, that one was for Hallmark. Well, for a production company. Sold it to Hallmark. It was a, just a really, really, I, I thought it turned out really well. I'm curious to know how much input you have on the projects when you arrive to them. Like, as far as, like, are the locations picked out for you? Or do they already have the casts all lined up? Like, how much of your own input do you bring in? And I know that you are a massive cinephile. Do you ever try to, like, sneak in some stuff into these productions? <laughs> well, the... Um, on these films, particularly, um, a lot of the work has been done by the time I get hired. I'm what's known as, as a director for hire. And they've already developed the script. They've already gotten the script approved. And they're funded and they're ready to go into production. And so that's when I get the call and I'll come in. And I usually have about 10 days to two weeks of pre-production before we start shooting. The cast is mostly done corporately. Um, the production companies know that the networks want certain actresses. Sometimes the networks have certain actresses on contract to do one movie a year, like Candace Cameron Burr and some of the bigger Hallmark stars and whatnot have, you know, multi-year deals. And so production company, you know, the Hallmark will say to the production company, okay, we're going to let you guys, this production company this year, make the movie with this actress that we have on contract. And, and so then they'll end up developing a script for, you know, this particular star. So that, you know, many times the uh, the lead actress is are, has already been determined ahead of time. And then mostly the male lead is usually corporately cast. I can recommend people for some of the supporting roles. And certainly in the case of McCormick, since I'd worked with her before, I did recommend her for Christmas Land. And they loved the idea and that worked out. And luckily she was available. And we're friends, so it all, you know, it was just, it was great to work with her again. And we always shoot these out of town. I, mean, I do a lot of them. And we'll cast the smaller parts locally. And so I will be involved in that, where the I'll either, we'll either audition people in person, or we'll have them send in audition tapes and go through those. And then I'll make a list of my top, you know, three or four favorite choices in order and send those in to the executives, and then it it goes to the higher-ups, and they decide if they like my choices or if they want to go with someone else. And, you know, it, it's kind of a negotiation. So the casting, I, I would say the leads are almost always cast corporately, and then as, as it gets down to the smaller roles, um, there's, there's a little more collaboration involved. As far as the location, sometimes the location manager has already, you know, scouted a bunch of places so that by the time I get there, they're usually the very first day, I hop in a van with the location manager and, and other department heads, the production designer, the cinematographer, uh, and he'll drive us around to the locations that he feels fit the script. And, and he'll usually have you know, if it's the main location or whatever, or the main house or whatever, he'll have several options in mind. And, you know, we'll we'll go and look at them and, and weigh the pros and cons and figure out, you know, which ones, which, which one we're going to go with. We don't have a lot of money. So it's really, you know, it's finding the locations that are already very luxurious and aspirational and 
fantasy like. I always feel like the audience wants to go on a, you know, a big glamorous fantasy trip. And, you know, when you're when you're renting expensive houses and stuff, they're not going to let you come in there and go, you know, the director thinks that the walls should be purple paisley. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know not going to change up much. <laughs> you're going to be able to bring in Christmas decor, of course, but you're not going to be able to, you know, wholesale change up the interior or, you know, add a wing to the house or do anything like that. We just don't have the money and the owners are not going to want you to do it and that sort of thing. So it's. You kind of have to, you know, find locations that fit the story and work with it. And it sounds like the scripts, like you mentioned, because you're a director for hire, they're pretty locked by the time you come in. You know, sometimes with the dialogue, you can make slight adjustments, especially the lead actresses and stuff will want many times want to change up a little bit here and there. If it's anything drastically different, then I'll shoot two versions. I'll say, let's do the script on and then... We'll let's try your version of it and we'll see if, you know, I'll put that in the director's cut and see if it passes muster. But if not, we may have to go back to to exactly how it was written. So, yeah, we do have to stick pretty close to the script. Now, you asked me if I try to sneak in, you know, <laughs> any any homages to other movies or that sort of thing. And. You know, occasionally, yeah, I might shoot a scene in a certain way or do a 360-degree, you know, spinning shot like in Vertigo. Or, you know, they're <laughs> yeah. always thinking of those kinds of visual um, tips of the hat. I have fun with it in that way for sure. But it's, you know, it, I I just tackle every project like I am going to make the Christmas movie that is going to beat all Christmas movies and it's going to look better than than any of them and it, the performances are going to be great and we're going to make people laugh, we're going to make people cry and that's the real challenge of it. And so, you know, I just I am able to have fun with it. Now, I will say this after doing a Christmas movie, and there was one year where I did two, the year that I did Christmas Land in November that we were talking about, I'd already done one earlier in the fall called I'm Not Ready for Christmas. I was so Christmased out by the time it came around. But let me tell you, I was like, <laughs> I've had enough Christmas this year. <laughs> That's a question I was actually wondering if the people that work on it are like, oh my God, no more Christmas. And it sounds like you do hit that upper limit eventually. Yeah, you kind of you kind of do. <laughs> and when you compare it to like the movie, movies that you made earlier on for companies like Full Moon, what would you say are like the big differences there? Gosh, those the movies that I made back in the 90s, much, much more control. I would be involved during the development of the script. I would be very involved in the casting from the lead on down, very involved. A lot of those movies we built, we had the money to actually build the sets from the ground up. And so we designed to specifications of exactly what I was envisioning in my mind. I mean, I, they were very much what cinephiles call, you know, an auteur <laughs> situation where it, it really was the director's vision from top to bottom. And I did several films like that. Guilty as Charged with Rod Steiger, uh, Acting on Impulse with Linda Ferentino and Nancy Allen, and the the two Oblivion films that I did for for Full Moon. We sh we built that whole western town in Romania and everything. The most fun I've ever, ever had directing a movie was Elvira's Haunted Hills, which was shot in Romania and is a spoof of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman movies like Pit and the Pendulum and House of Usher. We, you know, I just, I knew those films backwards and forwards as a kid. I just absolutely am a huge horror fan. And 
we had so much fun building those sets and <laughs> spoofing, you know, everything from those movies. And there, there was just not a minute where I wasn't just smiling ear to ear. It was so, so, so much fun. And Cassandra Peterson, who is Elvira, who co-wrote the script and everything, she is also a Vincent Price fanatic and, you know, knew those films backwards and forwards. So we were just giggling the entire time. And next year, 2021, is the 20th anniversary of Elvira's Haunted Hills, and it is going to be coming out in a beautiful Blu-ray, and people will be able to to see it again. Ooh, I will definitely be picking that up. Yeah, it's been kind of out of circulation a bit, and so we're real excited that a whole new whole new audience will get to see it, and the, and the fans who love it will get to see it again. I'm curious to know if, like, you hear... Like some director, do they have more um, authority over the projects they make, especially like Christmas ones? Do you ever feel like, hey, wouldn't you want to make like a gothic Christmas movie? Or is that like beyond the pale from for, from these companies like Marvista? I think it's going to happen. I mean, this is the stuff I get asked this every year. And I, I mean, eventually I do feel like there has to be a time when this basic formula become a wee bit overexposed. You know, maybe we've done about four or 5,000 of them where the plot's <laughs> Maybe people will say, hmm, I wonder if there's another flavor. <laughs> but they do not want to deviate from these formulas. And anytime people come in with mashup ideas, you know, well, let's do a hard Christmas. No. I mean, the sci-fi channel might do such a thing, but not Hallmark, not Lifetime, you know, it's very much want to stick to the to the formula and boy, are they have they been proven right. Every year it's like, oh, this has got to be the year where the ratings sink. Nope. Every single <laughs> year they keep going up. And every single year they make more movies than they before they have not found that saturation point yet <laughs> i mean I, I honestly i think there's eventually going to have to be uh you know hallmark has a couple of channels they have the regular hallmark yeah and then they have hallmark movies and mysteries channel and mm -hmm. lifetime, the same thing there's lifetime and there's lifetime movie network well i think they're going to end up with a special channel that is christmas all year round because they also do christmas in july you know they have a whole right. christmas movies that come in july and those are hugely popular and it used to show reruns of the of the best of the best well now it's the july one has become so popular that they're making originals for that so you know the fans of these movies are so rabid and for them and collect them and watch them all year round I can't imagine why the network hasn't already tapped into that. I mean, they may, they may be hesitant because they may fear there is going to be a saturation point. But, uh, but like I say, so far, <laughs> it has, you know, the saturation point is not even on the horizon. It's incredible, the popularity of these films. And the other thing that's so fulfilling and, and thrilling about directing these is they get seen by so many people. When they first premiere on, Life, on, on Hallmark, like the first night is already, you know, three or four million people. And then it reruns, you know, 10 more times during the holiday season. And you're just being seen by, by millions and millions and millions of people, you know. And you compare that to, I read a statistic that like 
Big Little Lies, which was the big prestige miniseries that HBO had, you know, with with um, Nicole Kidman and um, Reese Witherspoon and Meryl Streep came in in the second season and stuff. Their season premiere, they get like a million and a half, you know, of watching it. <laughs> now, granted, a lot more people, you know, see it later and see it on rerun, mm-hmm. like with the Hallmark stuff. But if you look in the media, I mean, Big Little Lies, you would think, you know, it's everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. It's really viewed everywhere. It's got this huge profile. And yet, you know, a Christmas movie that I make, you know, it bear it never gets reviewed. They don't do they don't review Christmas movies except a, a few very specialized blogs and stuff. And there's no, you know, cover stories on Entertainment Weekly and there's no, you know, big coverage of them on Entertainment Tonight and, and those kinds of shows. But they have a huge profile among the audience that wants these and on the on those networks. There is this gigantic audience, but it's kind of a little niche and a little hidden from mainstream, I guess. It's 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 very interesting. And you must have friends that were genre directors as well and started making Christmas movies. Is there like a competition between uh, you guys of like who can make the most Christmassy movie? Or Dave Dakota directs a lot of these, and uh, and Ron Oliver, and yeah, I'm I'm buddies with some with some of the other directors, and um, no, it's never a competition. It, I mean, we're friends, and and. You know, I don't look at it as a competition. Maybe, you know, I, I mean, I guess a, maybe a friendly competition, but no. We're just glad to be working, and it's a tough, tough business. And, you know, there were years when I didn't get any work at all. And in the last several years, other than this year with COVID screwing everything up, um, you know, I would I would be doing, you know, four or five. So I even had one year where I did six movies in one year. A lot of lifetime thrillers and these Christmas movies. And I've also done some bride movies because Hallmark has June bride series of, of films and stuff. But as a director for hire in this world of doing these TV movies, I find myself in a very enviable position. And I feel blessed day that I am in demand for that. And, you know, it's 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 great. I, I, I love it. I love every minute of, of doing these films. Me and my friend like to joke that like the Hallmark TV movie scene is kind of like the modern day Poverty Row, but like more jolly <laughs> with lots more fake snow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is like that in a way because you're making them on very tight schedules. Usually the Christmas movies are usually around 14 days. Um, sometimes if it's a cheaper situation and it's not going to go to the big sellers, you might have to do it in 12 days. But they're very, very, very tight schedules. And we shoot with two cameras, of course, on digital. You have to go in. I mean, I certainly go in prepared, you know, hugely prepared. So I know exactly what we're going to do. We have 12-hour days. I never go into overtime unless there's some absolutely crazy, you know, thing that was beyond all of our control, but that's very rare. And we don't have the money for overtime. And you have to give the crew a 12-hour turnaround <laughs> before you can start again. So, you know, it just it makes no sense. You, you, we can't afford it, and, we, and it's just not practical. So you have to get your day's work done. And 
make sure we do that. I, I, when I was in film school, I studied Hitchcock, and he was all about preparation and storyboarding and prepping his films ahead of time. And then I worked as Brian De Palma's assistant when I started out my career on films like The Fury and Dress to Kill. And, you know, he was he came from that same school of, of prepping like crazy. That's my training and what I and, and I, I wouldn't know how to make a film any other way. I, when I walk onto a set, I hand out the shot list, to everybody and, you know, OK, let's go. <laughs> and there's no rehearsal with actors ever. So sometimes the actress on day one, you know, literally, you know, she's just finished her makeup and walks onto the set. How you do, How are you? Nice to meet you. OK. And, and action, <laughs> you know, it's many times just that crazy. You know, you have to be prepared and know what you want. But I also, as, as business-like as all that sounds, I like to have a very fun family atmosphere on the set. And if we have fun, then why are we not? Why are we doing this? You know, we're living the dream. We're making movies, people. Right. <laughs> you know, I treat everybody down to the production assistants on up. I treat everybody equally. I learn everybody's name on day one. And I go around at the end of the day and shake everybody's hand and thank them uh, by name. And, you know, I want everyone to feel like this is our project. And when we get a shot, I say, cut, we got it. It's we. It's not I've got it. You've got it. It's we. It's the group. It's, you know, film is a very, very collaborative thing. And every, every cog in that, in that machine is important. So that's how we run the sets. And I do crazy things like, okay, Hawaiian shirt day, all the crew has to wear a Hawaiian shirt or just silly things like that and anything and everything to just make it fun. And so as far as your filmography goes, what would you recommend people check out? Not necessarily Christmas films, but I know that you have like a lot of TV productions. So which ones, if people listening to this, they're like, oh, I want to go see this one because this is your favorite, for example. <laughs> well, Elvira's Haunted Hills for sure. Next year when the it comes out, you got to see that. There's a film I did that's actually available now on Amazon Prime streaming for free, and it was called Out There. It was a sci-fi comedy that I did for Showtime back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. It's very good. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, and the cast is insane. We have Billy Campbell, who was the Rocketeer, Oscar winners Rod Steiger, Oscar winner Billy Bob Thornton. We've got Julie Brown, Bobcat Goldthwait, June Lockhart from Lost in Space, and Carl Stryken, who is the Lurch in the Addams Family movie and the Giant on Twin Peaks, and Jill St. John, and just, you know, everywhere you turn, there's another famous face of this movie movie. And not only that, but Bill Campbell was, uh, who had been in Rocketeer, his leading lady in Rocketeer was Jennifer Conley. And they were still dating when, when we were making our film. So Jennifer was visiting the set all the time. So one day I just, we wanted, we needed some extras for a grocery store scene in the, in the grocery line. And I said, Jennifer, come on, you and I are going to be husband and wife in the grocery line in front of, in front of Bill. We hopped in the frame. And if you, you know, if you blink, you'll miss it. But other Oscar winner in this movie with no lines, Jennifer Conley. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of crazy. Anyway, it's a, it's a really fun film. And so check that out, you know, and then the Christmas movies. If you go to my IMDb, you look up my name, Sam Irvin, I-R-V-I-N, and 
click on any of the films that I've done and it'll tell you if it's showing on TV or if it's streaming or you or if you can buy a DVD or Blu-ray. It has all that information on each page so you can kind of track them down that way. And I think people should also check out you've been doing a lot of writing lately. And there's some really great stuff that's coming. Yes, well, this year especially, um, I haven't been directing. I, I got got my writing hat on, and I got very inspired last spring when there was when you couldn't get toilet paper anywhere, and I was like, oh my god, this is a parody of a children's book waiting to happen. So I wrote a parody <laughs> called Sam's Toilet Paper Taper, and it's all about my trials and tribulations of trying to find toilet paper during the pandemic. And it has all kinds of movie references. We, I make the grocery store clerk, Peter Lorre, and, and there's a Carrie homage and Sound of Music and Good, Bad, and the Ugly and just all kinds of craziness. Julie Newmar, you, uh, you name it. And it's really fun. And it's done in the style of the little golden books that we all grew up reading as kids. You can get this on Amazon, and it's called Sam's Toilet Paper Caper, beautifully illustrated by, by Dan Gallagher. And all, and the reason I really don't mind promoting it is because I don't make a penny. All profits go to the World Health Organization COVID-19 solidarity response. Wow. So, and it's only 10 bucks. And you got to have the hard copy because every bathroom in the world needs one of these. It's perfect reading for the porcelain throne. So check that out. I also wrote a novel this year called Orbgasm. And it's a very sexy, erotic, sci-fi, thriller, road adventure. It's, it's a mashup of everything. And it's about an orb that falls from outer space into the backyard of an actress who'd been in a James Bond movie. So she's a Bond girl. And the orb cures everything. And she has cancer. She's instantly cured. But it also makes people very horny. <laughs> she eats up her best friend and they hit the road sort of Selma and Louise style because they want to take the orb to cure her dad of Alzheimer's. But the government's after them because they want to confiscate the orb. And it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. It is called Orbgasm. Unfortunately, it's considered an adult book. So when you go on Amazon and the regular search, you will not find it. They, they don't let adults pop up. You have to go to the book section and then you'll find it and it's o-r-b-g-a-s-m and it's also um it's 12.99 and all again all profits go to the world health organization's covid19 solidarity response fund i also did the extras for a a film that is one of my all-time favorites frankenstein the true story it was a two-part nbc tv miniseries in 1973 with an all-star cast james mason jane seymour david mccallum sir ralph richardson sir john gilgood agnes moorhead i mean it's incredible cast and it's a brilliant film it was written by the great iconic gay couple christopher isherwood and don bacardi it has a lot of gay subtext in it and you should definitely check it out. It's three hours. It's a commitment. But it, it came out on Blu-ray from Shout Factory this year. And I did all of the extras. I did a three-hour audio commentary. I did brand new interviews with Jane Seymour. I flew to London and got Leonard Whiting, who plays Dr. Frankenstein, in it. And I also interviewed the co-writer, Don Bacardi. And it is fantastic. I can't recommend that more. I'm going to have to check that one out because I know that you run the 
Rondo for the article that you wrote about the TV movie. Yes, I wrote about this film in a magazine called Little Shop of Horrors, number 38. This was about three years ago. The entire magazine, all 120 pages, is devoted to the making of this film. And I did very proudly win a Rondo Award for Best Article of the Year. I'm very, very proud of that. It's a study of the whole inception and making of, of that film. And it, it's a film that I've been obsessed with since I was a teenager. I was 17 when it aired in 1973. And at that time, I edited and published a fanzine on horror films called Bizarre. And I put it on the cover of the third issue and uh, for high school graduation present, my parents allowed me to go to London, and I actually interviewed Jane Seymour for the first time <laughs> over dinner wow. to talk about that movie in 1974. And so then forward, you know, 40 some odd years, I interviewed her a second time for that, for the magazine, for the Little Shop of Horrors. And then I interviewed her a third time for the Blu-ray. So it's pretty incredible. This, you know, you, I, I, I'm definitely obsessed with the film, as you can tell. And then I would just mention one other thing. I'm sorry uh, to be such a salesman, but oh, no worries. Because I was Brian De Palma's assistant on Dress to Kill, I've just written a 13,000-word chronicle on the making of that movie that is unbelievably great. I'm so so proud of it. It's the real, you know, inside look at the making of that film. And it just got published this month, December of 2020, in a magazine called Boobs and Blood, number three. And all the profits from this magazine go to a uh, breast cancer foundation called Keep Abreast Foundation. So it's for a great cause. But the entire magazine is devoted to my chronicle. And it's 54 pages. It's 175 photos. It's like a book devoted entirely to the making of Dress to Kill. So I highly recommend that. You can find that online if you go. I have it all over my um, my Facebook page, but you can find it also at Boobs and Blood magazine um, website. Check that out. So, yeah, I guess have a few things to sell. Ah, <laughs> no worries. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all my questions. This was a very insightful conversation. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.